You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Devings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and good morning and welcome to episode number 175 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings. Joining me here at the old Buckingham Air Show in Norfolk is my co-host Matt Smith. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. This is a very special show, isn't it? I'm I a little know. bit hot, by the way. Can you bring me down a bit, please? Oh, you're a bit hot, are you? Yeah, okay, absolutely. But like enough that. about me. There we go. <laughs> So you join us in here on Sunday morning. It's uh, eleven, just gone eleven o'clock here in the morning uh, at the studio here, live on location at the old Buckingham Air Show. Aircraft taxiing in right in front of us here at the moment. There we go. Everyone can still hear me, so don't panic. So thanks to everyone for joining us here in the YouTube chat room. There we go. Engine shut down. We we're all right now. Uh, it's been uh, a bit of a, a cold start this morning, a bit windy, but the sun's out now, the clouds are starting to clear, and uh, we're looking forward to a great air show day. So, Matt, you were here yesterday with Owen. Yeah, I was. Yeah, myself and Owen were here yesterday. We were uh, representing, I believe is the correct phrase. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, Owen took some great footage, which we'll play out for you a little bit later on, because actually the air show doesn't start until we've finished broadcasting. So, uh, yeah. uh, But we recorded some footage yesterday that we'll pl- try and uh, play out to you. The, w- one of the most amazing things actually was a model aeroplane and uh, and uh, or a model aeroplane and its real counterpart and they were doing a little display which was re- I've never seen anything like it it was absolutely brilliant but uh, what is this little plane next to us do we know what it is because it is fascinating it's oh I forget the name of it EZ 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 EZY EY EZ I forget the name of it now there are some great pleasure flights going I know actually I was talking with a friend of mine earlier I'm not sure is it is it pleasure flight or is it flight experience because there's this debate about which one you're supposed to I, be I would it. like to call it being a, fl- a flight experience a flight actually. experience yeah, yeah. Well, you what would, I call yeah. it but, yeah so. Jeff Braithwaite is suggesting maybe it's a glass air possibly no okay death. Oh, it's gone quiet it's gone quiet it's we, gone quiet we can stop <laughs> shouting everyone can actually <laughs> hear us now should we have some actually should we have some ATC broadcast yeah go on then yeah. we'll turn up a little bit yeah, so yeah. you can hear yeah not too, not too loud not too loud not it's too not loud. on number three no Oh, isn't it? No, no it's not. It's, no. Num- it's not number four. There <laughs> yeah. we go. That's there better. Go. Yeah, not too loud. Not too loud. Uh, not anyway, yes, yeah, so this is episode 175. We're going to do a normal show as per usual. So, um, yeah, it is Sunday the 30th of uh, July. It is just gone 10 past 9. Uh, no, 10 past 11 in the morning. And, uh, yeah, welcome to the Plain Talking UK podcast. So we've got loads of people joining us in the chat room from around the world this morning. And uh, we've got uh, David M uh, is in there. We've got Jeff Braithwaite, Tony S, Barbara Parrish, Neville Bounds, who is not with us this week, unfortunately. He's, uh, he's, live he's in the chat room, though. He's in the chat room. He's live on location somewhere. And uh, we've got uh, David M. Owen's in the chat room. Dan Hannington, our photographer, is in the chat room. Dan and uh, yeah we've got uh, loads of people watching us via YouTube which is which is really awesome indeed indeed well you know I thought I suppose we ought to do a, uh, a show of yeah, some description on, today it, we, Even yes. we are going to get very, I should warn you this is going to be one of those shows where we're very distracted by what's going on so uh, yeah yeah, so absolutely. we're going to start the show then as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK so if you're ready Matt yes I certainly am let's go
So, kicking off this week's first news story then here, it's uh, on the Guardian.com website and the headline, Incredible Shrinking Airline Seat. The US court says uh, seat size a safety issue. So, this is all about the size of uh, passenger seats shrinking on commercial airliners. It's a problem, but, uh, you know, unless you're the size of a house, I don't think it's going to be that much of a problem. But the US appeals court panel has said that the federal officials must reconsider their decision not to regulate the size of airline seats as a safety issue. In a ruling on Friday this week, one of the judges called it the case of the incredible shrinking airline seat. The Flyers' rights passenger group called the Federal Aviation Administration in court after the agency rejected its request to write rules governing seat size and the distance of, between uh, rows of seats. Uh, a three-judge panel for the Federal Appeals Court in Washington said the FAA had rely, uh, re, uh, relied on outdated or irrelevant issues and test studies before deciding that seat spacing was a matter of comfort, not safety. The judges sent the issue back to the FAA and said that the agency must come up with a better reasoned response to the group's safety concerns. Uh, the passenger groups say small seats bunched too close together slow down emergency evacuations and raise the danger of travellers developing vein clots. A bit worrying there. So airlines have steadily reduced the space between rows to squeeze in extra seats and make more money. On discount carrier Spirit Airlines, uh, a distance between the headrests and one seat that's uh, on the seat in front of a distance called pitch is 28 inches or 71 centimetres, which after accounting for the seat itself leaves little legroom for the average passenger. This year, news leaked that American Airlines planned to order new Boeing 737 jets with just 29 inches or 74 centimetres of seat pitch in the last three rows to make uh, room for an extra row of premium price seats at the front of the plane. American Airlines Chief Executive Doug Parker said on Friday that after objections from customers and flight attendants, the airline backed off. These rows will have 30 inches or 76 centimetres of pitch, which is still higher fit uh, or still a tighter fit than uh, the airline's current planes. Flyers Wright said the average uh, seat has become a narrower two, shrinking from 18 and a half inches to uh, 17 inches. The group uh, got the judge's attention. So shrinking width of seats Matt obviously you I mean you've flown with uh, Ryanair I'll take it you uh, you were comfortable enough on board uh, on board that 737-800 yeah yeah it's I mean from I suppose and I don't mean this is because I'm a bigger guy uh, one of the things that does concern me is this it's not so much the seat pitch but they are definitely getting narrower uh, when you think on in the whole everybody's getting bigger I don't, I don't know if making the seats any smaller is a good idea it might be a clever way of them trying to encourage you to buy sort of two seats if you see what I mean but we'll have to we'll have to see really I don't know if that's uh, if it's going to cause a problem later on, I don't know. I mean, you, I mean, you're quite lucky being of normal size, I suppose. So you, you, it's what not mean normal well, size. Well, you know, less of an issue for you, essentially. <laughs> you know, is it, no, I, I've got to a point now where I'm so so large. I've got like my own orbit that goes round me. You know? Okay. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, on to so the moving, next story. On to the yeah, next story, story too, yes. especially one for you. This yeah, is uh, this is this is not a horrible story at all. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it was. It's uh, it's from the Sun newspaper, which is never a good start. And the headline is "Mile High Salary." No wonder Ryanair makes us pay to choose seats. Airline boss Michael O'Leary's pay rises to 8k pie a rises. day. Pay rises. <laughs> Stop it. Uh, <laughs> Ryanair passengers have been infuriated by the airline in recent months, claiming that they are being forced to pay for allocated seats or face 
being seated at opposite ends of the cabin. The news that Ryanair boss Michael O'Leary's salary has ridden yet again, or has risen yet again, is unlikely to calm anyone's temper either. A bit of quality journalism here by the Sun newspaper. The chief exec's earnings hit 3.26 million euros. That's 2.92 million pounds last year, which works out at around about 8,931 euros or 7,987 pounds a day, an annual increase of 89,000 pounds on the salary he received the previous year. That's a 125 times the average salary of a nurse in the UK and 19.5 times uh, the salary of the Prime Minister, Theresa May. According to Ryanair's 27, 2017 annual report, O'Leary was paid a salary of 1 million euros plus bonuses. Uh, and share compensation. Now, I'm going to stop reading this story, actually, because it's really annoying me, to be brutally honest <laughs> with you. I mean, he's CEO of a very successful company, so surely what he decides to pay himself is absolutely no one else's business whatsoever. £8,000 a day. Yeah, but it's... Eight grand a day. Yeah, but it's his <laughs> company. He can do with the money what he likes. Oh, but £8,000 a day. Can you imagine being on £8,000... If he does an eight-hour day, that's £1,000 yeah. an hour. And I, I completely agree with the fact that, obviously, in comparison to poor, humble, like, nurses and doctors and all that kind of thing... It's appalling pay. And if he was a public servant, then it would be a different kettle of fish altogether. But it's absolutely none of our business what he gets paid, is it? It's his own it's business. It's nice to know. No, it's not. He, it's none he of could, our business. He could, te- he could technically go and buy a really nice car every two days. Yeah, and if he's the <laughs> boss of Ryanair, he should be. Or a reasonably priced car every yeah. day. Yes, uh, a reason. No, I'm sorry. That is, it's none of our business what, what they, they, they do. I do. It's like this. I mean, the, the whole BBC scandal that I mentioned carefully, because we do have someone from the BBC on later, but the, yes. the, the, the whole thing about the BBC, the BBC thing, I can understand why some people are up in arms about that, because obviously it's public money that's paying those salaries. But Michael O'Leary is not responsible to the government, other, as long as he pays his taxes... Does he? Well, I'm sure he does somewhere. <laughs> along the I'm sure there's some taxes paid there somewhere. Actually, Neville, Neville Bounds in the chat room said that he's uh, currently on £8 a day. Wow, as much as that. Oh. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah. Nev, you're worth absolutely every single penny. He is. Yep. He is. Yeah. He is. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so moving on to the next story. This one is on the ManxRadio.com site. And uh, the headline... Good news for UK uh, travellers on uh, low-cost airline Flybee, because they've been named the most punctual airline. So Flybee has been named Britain's most punctual airline. Figures commissioned by the BBC show the carrier, which serves a number of routes and uh, to and from the island, has consistent record of departing and arriving on time at all its operational airports. According to an industry analysis OAG, just over 1 in 10 flyby flights are significantly delayed. Conversely, EasyJet, which also carries Manx passengers to Liverpool and London, uh, has one of the worst track records for delays. Uh, Ronaldsway Airport just is just uh, given just one out of a possible five-star rating by OAG, with just over 75% of its flights operating on time. So that's good news for Flybee. They fly the uh, Dash 8Q400 here in the UK, which is an incredibly noisy aircraft, I will say. Um, but uh, no, it's good uh, news for Flybee because they fly from our regional airport here. They do, now, which is just yeah. across that way, not very far away from us here now at Old Buckingham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we're not far from their airspace here. No, so uh, good news for Flybee. Yeah, actually, that be, must, be, must be a bit of a nightmare when you're doing a show, show like this and you are so close to 
to to Norwich Airport. Oh, yeah. Certainly, as far as the, the uh, you know as as the crow flies, and you haven't got to go by road. Oh yeah, there's certainly some uh, some some no tams in place. I'd imagine in the area for yeah. uh, for imagine. us here. But uh, yes, it's uh, it's an interesting one there. So moving on to the yeah, next story, which uh, is for you, Matt. Yeah, this is on thefool.com, which makes me a little bit nervous. Are <laughs> you sure this is actually a real <laughs> website? Or am I about to read out some Actually, this, this story, Matt, is for, uh, for anyone who's ever wondered uh, just what the average prices are for commercial aircraft. Okay, okay. So this is the Motley Fool website, uh, as I say, which makes me a bit nervous. Are we sure it's a real website? I'm sure it is. Uh, here are the average prices for Boeing's five major commercial airlines. Wow. So Boeing is well known for its hugely popular 737, uh, as well as its 747, first introduced in 1970, and its 787 Dreamliner. But there's also a new 400-seat aircraft, the 777X. That's still on the drawing board and is predicted to become the biggest selling aeroplane in the market after its first delivery in 2020. Investors cheer when Boeing beats our rival Air, beats out rival Airbus <laughs> for lucrative contracts as it generates more revenue and higher profits. At the Paris Air Show just last month, Boeing crushed Airbus by announcing commitments for 437 new aeroplanes compared to only 182 for its rival. Uh, the biggest seller was the 737 MAX family of aircraft which scored 418 commitments from buyers mostly for the 737 MAX 10 uh, though Boeing also received 121, 125 commitments for the 737 MAX. Uh, 737 MAX 8 um, the rest of the commitments were for the 787 Dreamliner. Notably absent were orders for the iconic 747, which underscores why Boeing is phasing out the aircraft. Uh, now the, so the 747, that's actually a four-engine. Is that, mm, is that, is that one of the reasons why they're sort of phasing it out? Well, that, we ran a story last week, didn't we, saying mm. that uh, the airlines are steadily uh, phasing out the 747s. I knew that's why it was fresh in my memory. Yes, <laughs> it should be, hopefully. <laughs> it's the latest current market outlook, which uh, forecasts industry demand out to 2036. Boeing eliminated a separate uh, call-out very large aircraft that previously contained the 747, choosing instead to merge it into a combined medium-slash-large passenger wide-body category. Boeing says that the planes aren't selling. Airbus says likewise in relation to its A380 airplane, which is a real shame because I think the A380 is a beautiful aircraft actually, uh, because few carriers have the capabilities and routes to handle the planes with more than 400 seats. The 747 is a 400-seat aircraft but can be configured to cram in as many as 660 passengers onto a single plane. In fact, Boeing only has 23 747s in its backlog of airplanes, the fewest of any aircraft, and it produces just one plane every two months. Obviously, it's not committing many resources to it. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit so of a prices. Yeah, yeah, we've got the uh, list of air uh, prices here for the Boeing family, and um, coming in at the most expensive is uh, obviously the uh, 747. Uh, this is the Dash 8. Uh, there's a backlog of currently, according to this, there's a backlog of currently 23 of these aircrafts, uh, and they're producing a production rate is 0.5 a month. So they're producing half an aircraft a month. Uh, wow. you, the uh, the current price, average price. You mean half finished? Half finished, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The average price of uh, seven four then is uh, three hundred and eighty seven point two million dollars. Wow, very um, cool. Very coming cool. in after that, you've got the triple seven. Uh, there's a backlog of hundred and twenty four of these. Uh, Boeing are planning to increase to five aircraft product in, uh, produced a month in August this year. Uh, you can get one of those three hundred and forty four point two million dollars. 
coming in after that, you've got uh, the uh, 787 Dreamliner. Uh, there's currently a backlog of 679 of these. Uh, they're planning to uh, increase uh, to 14 aircraft a month uh, by the end of this year. $270.9 million will get you one of those. And uh, last on the list then, you've got the 737 family. Uh, and they, uh, there's a backlog, would you believe it, Matt? There's a backlog of the 737 aircraft, four, just over 4,500 yeah. aircraft. But uh, I suppose it's such a useful-sized aircraft, though, oh, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you can, you know, it, 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 it fits into Ryanair's um, sort of scheme. It yeah. fits into oh, so yeah. many different airlines. Yeah. Southwest it's, it's in the uh, States. It's a good mid-range aircraft, isn't it? Yeah, so they've got uh, a production rate per month of uh, 42 737s. Wow. Um, but $103.4 million uh, mm. will get you one of these. But they're planning. I assume these are list prices. <laughs> they're out, well, average, yeah, prices. It's an average price of each aircraft. But they're, Boeing are hoping to increase the uh, production rate to 57 a month in 2019 um, to try and get rid of this backlog. That's one heck of a backlog, though, Matt. Four and a half thousand aircraft. That is. So, so crazy. I mean, if yeah. you're going to get a job, go for a job at Boeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think you, you might mean, have it for a bit yeah. longer. Yeah. <laughs> so next story, moving on, is on the travelweekly.co.uk uh, website. And uh, it's good news for EasyJet this summer. EasyJet uh, to carry 67,500 passengers this summer uh, with special assistance. So for those of you travelling who require special assistance, I know my uh, my grandparents uh, have, a, have a, a, a medium amount of special assistance when they're boarding. Um, especially when they're travelling with Ryanair, where the gate is 4,000 miles away from the terminal building at uh, Stansted. But uh, an estimated 67,000 of EasyJet's uh, 11.5 million passengers this summer will require some form of special assistance during their travels. The budget airline carries almost 500,000 people a year who need some form of special assistance, but many of those requiring special assistance are still deferred from flying through concerns about how they will be looked after. The airline recently improved its help pages for customers with a disability, but acknowledges that there are more. Uh, it's more. There's more to do, particularly for people with less visibly obvious disabilities. Uh, they've started to talk to leading charities, which represent people with a range of such disabilities, and will be working with them over the coming months to see how they can make travel with the airline easier. A spokesperson said. It's important that our customers requiring special assistance let us know at least 48 hours before they fly so we can make the necessary arrangements. This comes against a backdrop of a 10% rise in the number of passengers requiring some form of assistance uh, last year over 2015 and doubling from 232,703 in 2010. Uh, the, uh, there are still major uh, challenges ahead, uh, not least the interface between the airline and the airports here and on the European continent, including the responsibility of all airports to provide assistance before boarding, the flight and baggage handling, uh, which help them have critical equipment, and they're still working on this. Uh, so this year we expect more than 2.5 million passengers with a disability or reduced mobility to take flights in and out of the UK and they'll continue to work with the airports and airlines to ensure that uh, assistance of a high quality and trips are completed as smoothly as possible. Now Matt, I, a few years ago, um, oh, well actually last year as well, my grandparents flew to Malta with EasyJet and yeah. uh, one of the comments they made was how really, really incredibly well they were looked after by EasyJet. Uh, on the ground, uh, you know, getting on board the aircraft. I, I think. I think to be fair, I mean, we, yes, we had a very similar experience 
um, with uh, that was EasyJet when I because we did special assistance for the very first time with my mum and uh, I must be honest that yeah the support we got from them was absolutely astounding but I think when it does come to that sort of thing I don't th don't think it matters which airline you use because actually the special assistance is predominantly operated by the airport it's only really the last bit um, where you're handed over to the cabin crew if you like where it's directly in involved so as long as uh, you you have to book it through your airline i know that much uh, but once yeah. you've booked it with the airline um it's actually the airport that that is predominantly responsible for how good your experience with, yeah. with that is and i say from a personal experience when it comes to um uh luton i mean luton airport's special assistance was absolutely fantastic fantastic we've got the old steerman going out again by the look of it yeah the boeing steerman's now going out again for another oh, is it a boeing i didn't know that yeah the, the uh Boeing Stearman. It's, uh, I think this one, I forget the date of this one now, 1950 uh, odd. I forget the date now, the year of this it's, one. It's got a couple of years under its, its belt. It's got a few years yeah. under its belt. Uh, a US, ex US Navy version, this one. Uh, been very well looked after and maintained here at Old Buckingham uh, by, uh, by a group of people here. And it's hangered as well, kept nice and tidy and clean and dry in a hangar. Uh, awesome uh, looking aircraft, though. Uh, we're gonna. We've had yeah. some uh, video shots of that earlier, actually taking yeah. off in that, which is yeah. good. Absolutely. Anyway, so, on the next on. story. This next story. is on the uh, Telegraph Business website, and the headline is Airbus cuts A380 production again as doubts Ooh. grow over the future of the Super Jumbo. Obviously, we alluded to this story uh, a couple of stories back here when, with with our little uh, chart. Um, yes, so the future of the Airbus's A380 Super Jumbo looks even more bleak after the pan-European aircraft company said it was cutting production of the double-decker airliner. Reporting half-year figures, Airbus said that considering the current order booking situ uh, situation, deliveries of the A380 will be reduced to eight in uh, just eight in 2019. At last year's Farnborough Air Show, the company said it would slow production to just 12 a year by 2018, down from the rate of 27 the year before. Demand for the giant four-engine aircraft has waned as airlines seek the efficiencies of smaller twin-engine aircraft. Airlines have ordered just 317 A380s so far, 213 have been delivered. Industry commentators have long speculated the A380 programme will be closed and even senior executives from the company concede Airbus will struggle to make money on it. Aviation analyst Saj Ahmed from Strategic Aero Research said cutting the A380 underlines the market, marketing disaster that belies the programme and that Airbus is realising that even life support has to be turned off and uh, it's evident that that day looms closer. Calling the Super Jumper a variety project that needs to be killed off, he added. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, even if a mooted order from Emirates emerges, it will not be uh, will not support a rate increase. Uh, it will be nothing more than Airbus having to make more uh, A380s at a loss and still face the barrel of execution of the airplane. Airbus reported flat group sales at 28.7 billion euros, with net profit down 15% to 1.5 billion pounds under uh, billion euros sorry underlying earnings raised uh, three uh, so eased at three percent uh, to 1.8 billion euros although the figures were boosted by the 560 million euro sale of the defense electronics business 
and a C7, uh, C1, uh, sorry, a 70, 174 million euro currency windfall. I suppose that's the advantage, isn't it, where, where the, the, the euro is doing okay. Uh, uh, adjusting for these and other similar one-off similar charges, Airbus's preferred measure of performance earnings were 1.1 billion euros. That was down a massive 35% not good is it really no i mean the a380 as we all know it's a huge aircraft off you know it's not to a lot of people's taste a lot of people think it's ugly um the one in the story here is on the picture is a ba1 um, yeah. but uh, i mean i've flown on the 380 now a few times and uh, you know it is a it is a really comfortable and nice aircraft to fly on but uh, you know i think uh, there there will come a time when this will get to the same kind of position as what the yeah. 747 is at now where the airlines are going to you know start to to move to slightly smaller aircraft with two engines as opposed to four. But it really hasn't um, been in production that long, has it? No, this aircraft, the 380, is a yeah. relatively new aircraft still. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean the 747, um, I can understand why it was... Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's been in service for many, many years, and they're, they're sort of decided now that actually, you know, it, it's time to sort of look for different things. But I noticed Boeing hasn't really come up with a similar equivalent no. to the 747, and I, I guess, again, that shows market pressures, doesn't it? That's an aircraft that you flew on. Um, oh, is that with the Piper Twenty Eight? Yeah, that's with uh, with we flew on one of those with Captain Al. Yeah, uh, right. yeah, just taxing in there. I can't. I, unfortunately, I can't get it in shot because it's right. You might just it's see just it go point. across the back of uh, <laughs> this uh, little glass thing in front of us here. You might just see it behind. Can't but no, it's uh, it's a shame, really. I mean, I think um, if uh, Airbus decide to re-engine the A three eighty, they'll uh, they might get some uh, joy, hopefully. And uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, on to the next story, please, Carlos. So next story is on the USA Today.com site and the headline uh, is good news for Airbus moving on then from Boeing on to Airbus and uh, they've delivered their 100th A350 wide-body jet. So Airbus has delivered its uh, R100 A350 on Wednesday this week, handing over the milestone aircraft to customer China Airlines during a ceremony at the Jetmakers Assembly Line in Toulouse, France. The 100th A350 XWB, or Extra Wide Body, milestone comes as we uh, reach our fastest wide body production ramp up on track to meet the target of 10 A350 deliveries per month by the end of 2018. Airbus CEO Fabrice Bruget said in the statement that uh, he's especially proud to deliver the aircraft to our long-standing customer China Airlines. The A350 setting new standards for long-haul air travel in terms of efficiency and comfort, thus being a perfect choice aircraft for China Airlines to expand its long-haul network. Airbus's uh, inaugural A350 uh, delivery was just uh, in December 2014 when launch customer Qatar Airways became uh, the world's Careful. the world's <laughs> first uh, carrier to take one of the jets, and uh, since then Airbus uh, deliveries uh, they've delivered a total of fourteen uh, to uh, fourteen airlines amongst uh, others that now have the A three fifty in their fleets, being Cathay, uh, Finnair, Latam, Lufthansa, Singapore Airlines as well to name but a few. In fact, uh, it was uh, a Singapore Airlines A three fifty that uh, helped. Airbus mark another milestone just this past October. Uh, that came when Singapore Airlines took possession of an A350 that Airbus commemorated as the 10,000th aircraft of all time to roll off its assembly lines. In the USA, Delta took delivery of its first A350 earlier this month. American and United also have ordered the A350 as well. However, this has since deferred uh, their initial delivery schedules for the aircraft, raising uncertainty about the status uh, of those orders. 
So uh, it's becoming a quite a popular jet now, the A350. Um, this is kind of comparable to the Dreamliner in mm. size and looks as well, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, we always we always comment on the A350 as being the uh, Zorro masked aircraft <laughs> of the uh, right, okay. of the commercial jetliner world. I think most right. people would agree there. But uh, it's good news then for seems yeah, for us for <laughs> hundred hundred A350. So they really are getting a move on with those yeah, aircraft. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, I've just had an ad blocker come up on mine, so it's difficult. Okay. Just bear with me a moment. I, I turned mine off. Yeah, I don't know quite <laughs> what happened there. It's, it won't go away. Oh, so well. You can probably mind. hear it's quieter now. The yeah, Saxon helicopter's gone. The, the Boeing Stearman as well is, uh, yeah. is out on a joint. They'll flight. be back. Don't panic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, we'll, get, we'll, we'll give it a go. I'll see how I get on. We might have to get Carlos to carry on with it in okay. a minute. But, uh, yeah, so it's the argus.co.uk is the website. And the headline is Gatwick Airport 1.15 billion pound boost, which is very exciting. So Gatwick Airport is investing 1.15 billion pounds over the next five years, uh, with 240 million pounds planned for 2017-18 alone. This is part of plans for more growth and improved efficiency while also maintaining its record levels of passenger satisfaction. This 2017 capital investment program sets out Gatwick's investment strategy which continues to improve facilities and transform service. This, uh, since the airport changed ownership in December 2009, Gatwick has invested £1.5 billion. Projects include configuring stands to facilitate um, a changing aircraft mix, building a new hangar in partnership with Boeing, extending Pier 6 to increase peer service levels beyond its 95% uh, target, aiming, ad adding a new domestic arrivals facility in the South Terminal and continuing to roll out its self-service bag drop product. The commitment from its capital investment programme will bring Gatwick's total investment plans since change of ownership through to 2022 to a staggering 2.7 billion pounds. Uh, Gatwick's construction director Raymond Maley said that uh, since coming into independent ownership, Gat Gatwick has delivered record growth in passenger numbers and long haul services, while also taking passenger satisfaction levels to an all new, an all new, all time high. As we plan to grow towards 50 million passengers per annum, we will focus on efficiency and service so that our passengers continue to receive the airport experience they expect in the most sustainable manner possible. We will continue to develop the airport to meet the needs of our airlines and passengers with improvements to the way we operate on the airfield and the service we offer in our terminals. These projects will be delivered in a way that will help us to realise our ambition to become the UK's most sustainable airport. Regarding future runway expansion, our, fi our, our, our financeable and deliverable scheme for a second runway remains on the table. We will deliver a new runway for Britain in addition to or instead of Heathrow. Ooh, in addition to, now that's interesting. Um, should the government give us the support now or support, sorry, now or in the future. Other projects that are on the horizon include a new arrivals facility, including a new baggage reclaim in South Terminal, a, a suite of IT projects supporting core airport functions. That's something to make everyone nervous. Uh, expanding the departures lounge in both terminals and extra parking. You can never go wrong with some extra parking. Improved access to the South Terminal for passengers and staff using local buses to travel to and from the airport. Projects to support greater use of electric vehicles continuing to reduce the airport's environmental impact. 
the capital investment program is rolling a is a rolling five-year plan which is published annually this allows the cip to be re to be refreshed regularly and as market conditions and operational needs change you know, it must be a huge thing, Matt, you know, for airports like Gatwick and Heathrow. They're both two incredibly large airports yeah. in the UK. And, um, you know, once you've, you've modernised one area, by the time you've got to the other end of the airport you've and modernised that, you've got to do it all again because that, that other area is 10 years old. But um, there are some parts, I know I've flown into Gatwick uh, last year a few times, and it's, uh, there are some parts that could, could do with a little bit of a um, uh, sprinkling uh, with, with some paint. But it's and, like uh, all these things. I mean, you've got to have some kind of... Um, remodeling program, if you like. Yeah. Otherwise, you are literally you, you, you're just falling behind, aren't you? You just, you, as you say, by the time you finish one bit, it's time to do it again. Yeah, very true. So moving on to uh, the next story. This one uh, is a bit concerning. Uh, it, it's uh, well, you, were, you were telling me about this when you got here. I, I can't yeah, believe this that one, this sort of thing can happen. I know, especially the reason behind it. Yeah, this one. Uh, this one actually came onto the news feeds uh, yesterday, uh, Saturday, the 29th. This uh, the headline was on the Mirror. UK website and uh, the headlines plane carrying 99 people almost ran out of fuel as pilots forgot to retract the landing gear that's forgot to retract their landing gear yes it's uh, it's something I, I never normally forget in the uh, Cessna 150 uh, you're gonna work this one out come on Matt yeah, why, well, I, I, well, why I, wouldn't I why wouldn't I forget to retract the gear in a 150 come because on. you don't have to Yes! <laughs> well done, oh, he's such a legend, oh, isn't he? I know. Oh, he's he's going to have to sit I've down got, now. I've got enough going on today. <laughs> Do you mind? <laughs> so the uh, the Air India flight AI-676 was flying between Kolkata and Mumbai uh, when it was forced to divert due to the alarming speed it was losing fuel. So two pilots have been suspended uh, after the aircraft they were flying, carrying 99 passengers, nearly ran out of fuel because they got, forgot to retract the landing gear. The Airbus A320 left Kolkata and uh, was on uh, 90 minutes into its two-and-a-half-hour flight to Mumbai when the uh, pair took the decision to divert to Nagpur, as they would not have uh, made it to their final destination. A source revealed Air India flight AI-676 has struggled to climb and flown at 24,000 feet compared to the usual 35,000 to 37,000 feet, travelling at 230 knots as opposed to 500 knots. Despite this, the air pilots only realised they had forgotten to retract the landing gear when they attempted to lower it during their descent. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, the really extra weird. drag of the wheels undercarriage uh, led to increased fuel burn, which, according to a senior uh, pilot, would have been very noisy for the cabin crew and passengers and caused severe vibrations. He said it was surprising that no one complained about the poor flight quality, although he added that they may have thought they were flying through a monsoon, which could have been the cause. <laughs> yeah, right. Additionally, flying at lower altitudes would have led to more fuel being burned as the air is a lot denser, causing poorer mm. engine efficiency. The senior pilot for the airline said it was a miracle the pilots realised the aircraft was running low on fuel and blamed the unbelievable situation on a casual uh, approach, adding that this uh, lapse shows extreme poor situational awareness and complete breakdown of crew resource management, or CRM, between both pilots. The post-takeoff checklist includes checking if the landing gear has been retracted. They realised the landing gears were down only when they were preparing to land at Nagpur and running low on fuel. 
Danjanjay Akumar, a spokesperson for uh, the airline, said that the pilots have been taken off flying duty while the incident is being investigated. <laughs> yes. Now, now we, we were amazing. talking about this when you got here, actually, weren't we? We were talking yeah. about this, and one of the things that you said is like. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, was the was the light not working? You know, the one that says my landing gear is down. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I assume there must be a light for this sort of thing <laughs> that sort of, you know, makes it clear that something isn't as it should be. Oh, it's just a, a you know, you know, you have three lights, you know, three greens, you know, three reds, three green, three greens, all the gear is down, three reds it's all up and, you know, locked and everything. Um, but uh, Li uh, Lisboa and Nelson's quite rightly said uh, on the 150, uh, 152 and 170 that uh, you have to call out positive climbing, but no gear up. He's right because on the yeah. on the actual checklist, when you take off in the yeah. 150, you say positive or your positive right, your climb. Yeah. Right, uh, Je uh, Jeff Braithwaite has actually said in the chat room here. Great, great point here is like I'm surprised they didn't tear the gear off at 300 <laughs> knots. Oh, no. I mean, I mean they're lucky that it stayed where it, it it stayed locked and they were able to get it down on the ground. Really, I mean, it's just, I mean, the, it's just so bizarre. The the noise that the gear makes in the, in a 150 or 172, you know, you could, you know you've got something underneath you making Gosh, a windy yeah. noise, yeah. but in a commercial jetliner that gear is yeah huge yeah and noisy and noisy yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and you've got wind brushing past it at 300 knots so yeah. you know it's just oh, it baffles. is it is just a very very bizarre story isn't it I, I can't yeah. believe um, was that Tony S saying remember the APG crew in the Hawker simulator they did the same thing oh, oh no it's probably pit Fame. flying yeah Oh, right. No, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so moving on to the last uh, news story in the commercial segment this week. It's uh, it's We haven't had a top ten for a little while, but this uh, is a bit different. This is a top eleven. Excellent. <laughs> okay, then. Here we go. So this top eleven, then, is the things airline cabin crew really wish passengers wouldn't stop doing. Yeah. So, in at... Uh, in at number 11. Number 11, then, is... Uh, well, this is quite an interesting one, I must admit. So, now in at number 11, 11 it's bad manners. Ask any flight attendant what They're they hate the most. from the 70s, aren't they? And it'll be bad manners in general. And... Uh, <laughs> Right, she then. said, uh, I'll just read it I'm serving <laughs> you breakfast at 3am somewhere over Romania and you can't even say please. How rude. Indeed, at number 10. At number 10, it's inconsiderate parents. <laughs> Some people think it's okay to change their baby's nappies on their seats. What? It's not. That's it's horrible. disgusting. <laughs> people have to eat, sleep and sit there for hours on end and you can do none of these things comfortably if said seat smells of... Uh, un unpleasant things <laughs> in at number nine in at number nine unruly passengers you're not Jason Statham and this isn't a Hollywood film where you have to be the hero we're trained in self-defense and we will restrain you if we think you're putting people in danger if you cause enough of a scene you'll end up spending your holiday in the local Nick number eight at number eight, it's the Mile High Fa Club. Family show, Carlos. Family show. Have you proofread this? I've proofread this. Don't <laughs> okay. uh, just don't panic. Uh, just yet. don't. There are far uh, more romantic places to get frisky than a cramped cubicle on a passenger jet to Careful. Manchester. Careful. Believe me when I say that these toilets can get pretty filthy on a busy flight, and and uh, don't like having to knock on a door to break up a said embarrassing moments. Number mm. seven. So number seven it is drunk people. Oh, oh goody. Yes. So jet two all over again. We Sorry. want everyone to enjoy their journeys and uh, who doesn't like a whiskey on board on the rocks while they board and sit back and relax uh, on the beginning of their holiday. But if you're drunk and you, well, well, there we go. Then you uh, um, inadvertently 
are sick on the seat in oh, front of God. you, yeah. <laughs> uh, then the crew have to clean it up. And uh, then if you get unruly on the flight, then you're going to have the police waiting for you at the other end. Always nice. Number six. Number six is people wearing headphones. What's the matter with wearing headphones? Surely well, that's what you want them to do. I know. Well, if you're Nev, you'll have a pair of Sennheiser noise-cancelling ah, headphones. Yes, yeah. So when I uh, <laughs> one asking a passenger wearing headphones three times if they'd like tea or coffee, and they just show yes okay. without taking them out or turning the music down, you know the who they are, and you're literally some of the worst people alive. I mean, I know a lot of people get really stressed because uh, if you're on the train, all you can hear is. You know, coming out of the heaven. <laughs> but on an aeroplane, let's be honest, you're not going to hear it over the engine, oh. are you? Let's be honest. Unless you're on the Dreamline when it's quiet. Anyway, finally in at number five. Number five, asking if we're afraid of flying. Seriously, you'd be nothing surprised with that. how many passengers ask with that. cabin crew, but aren't you scared of flying? It would be a sorry state of affairs if cabin crew were afraid of Good flying, point. wouldn't yeah. it? Okay, yes, that that is fair point. Number four. Number four is... Uh, passengers messing up the toilets sometimes it gets so bad we have to pour lemonade miniatures down the toilet to get rid of the the, um, the, uh, unsightly marks left behind Uh, always nice it's beyond gross you wouldn't leave your toilet in that state at home so why do it on a plane (laughs) number three number three it's throwing a strop because you didn't get your first meal choice (laughs) so uh, they hate it when our cabin crew hate it when passengers have a meltdown when their meal choice is unavailable Right. Uh, We never carry 100% of everything because that would waste, uh, be a waste and a huge uh, mass of storage space to store everything. When people start having a tantrum at 40,000 feet because they can't have their poached salmon, I feel like screaming, we've run out of fish, not fuel. It's not quite naked, it's number two. Number two, acting all entitled. So uh, if this isn't uh, that how you get your upgrades into like, know, premium I, economy it is me. and stuff? Yeah. If uh, cabin crew had a pound for every passenger who asked, "Is there a seat phrase that I can say at checkout or secret phrase that I can say at checkout that will get me an upgrade?" They'd be a wealthy cabin <laughs> well, attendant. Well, that is true. Uh, the phrase you're after is, "May I purchase an upgrade? Here is my credit card." <laughs> And much as they'd love to offer you one, telling me it's your birthday or wearing your fanciest clothes won't get you an upgrade. I've seen and heard every trick in the book a million times over. Well, I have to say, I wore my best clothes, and and I, you know, asked nicely, and I got an upgrade. Okay, all right. I still don't believe you. Plus, Uh, email emailing the airline before you fly is also a good idea. And also mentioning that you might do an aviation-related podcast podcast around every single week, so therefore be nice to me. Uh, In at the very top of the chart is number one. Number one. So this this, is... This must be for anyone who works cabin crew on the budget airlines. Is Owen listening? I think he is, yeah. Owen, Owen, (laughs) this is for you on Harpjet. You'll know this one. So at number one, the worst thing hated by cabin crew, too much hand Hand luggage. luggage, So passengers are always bringing on too much luggage and expecting the cabin crew to put it in the overhead locker. If a 15-stone man can't lift it above his head, then they certainly can't. And <laughs> I have to say, I've seen this a few times where people struggle to lift their well-overweight yeah. yeah. hand yeah. luggage They're cases well into the overhead yeah. bins. <laughs> and I just, you know, I, oh, there we go. There we go. Number one, there we go. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was then the 11 things that airline cabin crew really wish passengers would stop doing. And that was on the Manchester Evening News. That yeah, one. yeah, thanks to them for that. So, so that's where we bring the uh, the news segment of uh, the show today, live from Old Buckingham. 
to a close. So throughout the day, we're going to uh, keep streaming. We're going to bring you some live shots of the airfield here at Old Buckingham and some of the aircraft that are flying on display. Uh, we're going to come back to you periodically throughout the day and hopefully we'll have some people chatting. Uh, yeah, we're going to come back, actual talking back live. Yeah, yes. but, uh, but uh, yeah, as I say, that's the end of the commercial segment. So we've got two pieces to play out to Are we going to play those now? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, awesome. So we've got one uh, for you. Think I think what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to go down the BBC route, I think. Oh, we're doing the BBC one first? Oh, I think we should oh, do that first. Now, wow. many listeners will be aware of the fact uh, that the BBC's travel correspondent is an absolutely charming chap by the name of Richard Westcott. And um, the BBC did very, very well. Uh, not the BBC. Nev did very, very well. He popped up. Oh, hello. You're waving at me. How does Nev do this? I know. Nev has got contacts I in, know. in more got... places yeah. than a contactless card. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> well, there is that. Yes, I know. But he's been in the industry for years, yes, hasn't he? Yes, yes. You know. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, Nev took a little bit of a stroll up to uh, BBC Broadcasting House and... Uh, what I'm about to play you is the results, so Woo-hoo! sit back and enjoy. Hello, it's Nev here again, and today I'm at uh, the BBC at New Broadcasting House in a very posh studio. I have with me BBC's transport correspondent, Richard Westcott. Hello, Richard. Hello, yeah. I know it looks posh, but <laughs> it doesn't feel like that when it doesn't work sometimes. <laughs> and you were just telling me early on, this is the studio you come into uh, when there's a story breaking and you have to do something fairly quickly. Yeah, I mean, for plane crashes, for example, you know, I have to go on the TV very quickly and on the radio, and this would be, because it's very close to my desk, one of the studios I'd run into and then do, say, Radio 4, Radio 5, perhaps Radio 2 if they're on air and they want something like that, some of the um, local radio if they want it, and then run downstairs and do the telly as well. So, yes, I could do everything from here. Kind yeah, of interesting. Thing. Tell me about your career. How did you get into being a journalist specifically for, for transport? Well, I was a generic journalist probably for about 15 years, something like that. I was a breakfast telly reporter, I was at Radio 1, I was on local uh, radio, did a bit of presenting on local radio, that kind of thing. And the way the BBC works, basically, when the jobs come up, you go for them and you gen up as quickly as you can to become an expert in that area. So the people who become the health correspondents aren't necessarily experts in health, economics, the same thing, politics, the same thing. But it does help to have a real interest. So when I went for this job, I think there were about 14 other people going for it. It was at one of those musical chairs sort of periods in the BBC's life. A few people were being made redundant and so it was very competitive to get this job. And luckily, I happen to love aeroplanes and cars and motorbikes and all that kind of stuff. So that did give me a head start. But you, I wasn't an expert as such. Do you prefer being a specialist rather than a, a generalist, if you don't mind me asking that question? Yeah, no, I, I like it more. Um, you can just get into the depth of the story a little bit more. And with transport, basically, there are regional transport correspondents and really good ones as well for the BBC. But I'm the only national one. So frankly, when a big story happens, I get to do it. And when you're in another field, you're often bumped by someone who's frankly better than you, you know, higher up the chain than you sort of thing. So transport, I kind of get to do the big stories. Now, we were talking earlier on, obviously, this is an aviation podcast, so we're going to be talking about aviation uh, today. In terms of the um, equipment that you have available to you now, it's um, fantastic, you know, from radio scanners to um, ADSB tracking, this kind of thing. Does that make your job easier in in a sense? Uh, It uh, makes it harder in some ways in that everybody can see when an aircraft is squawking, they're in trouble. 
Uh, and so I get these constant emails saying there's someone circling over Manchester and they're you know losing fuel and keep an eye on it kind of thing. I think you, we all know how often that happens around the world. So it can be a little bit sort of people jump the gun a little bit thinking there is an emergency when there isn't. Where it is really useful is people recording images of things that have happened. You get a much clearer idea of things that have happened much sooner because people on board the aircraft or people watching are filming it and they make their way into the public domain pretty quickly. So I guess in some ways good, in some ways bad, but there is no substitute for human beings and talking to human beings, I find. So you get all the information you like on your iPhone or whatever it is you're using, but talking to pilots, talking to investigators, that's how you get to the nub of what's really happened for me. And do you get the chance to, to do that as part of your work? I'm pretty lucky. So I've, I've formed over the years a good relationship with the, the AAIB. Um, I've been down and uh, looked at all their equipment, and I've had a look in their listening room, for example, where they, where they would replay back the messages from black boxes. Um, and so, you know, it's all electronically sealed and they show me what they do with the black box and you've got to dry them all out, first of all, all the circuits and the special oven for that. And they've got four speakers around the room because they want to recreate what the sound would have been like in the cockpit. So they're trying to recreate as accurately as possible what everyone on board would have been hearing. They tell me who's allowed in that room and who isn't allowed in that room. So I get all of that sort of unique information in advance and then that means I can go on the telly pretty quickly and give an accurate description of what would really happen. So they got the, the um, data recorders for example from MH17 I think it was and then they came back to the UK um, and so when that happened I was able to say roughly what the room looked like and what they would be doing and, uh, and how it would all work so it really helps in that respect. Well personally speaking I've always been very impressed with your the, the way that you report the story the accuracy with, with which you do it. I've noticed so much in, in the press and also on social media the sensationalization of some of these events which really have turned out to be non-events. How are you able to filter out all the rubbish and actually get to the, the real story? And people want answers don't they and they want them quickly and frankly editors at the BBC are the same as everybody else they'll, they'll read something and say oh I heard there was a missile going off I heard there was another plane in the vicinity I you know all of that sort of chatter going on around around these sort of major accidents and it is my job I think you're right to actually plow through that and get to the facts so I tend to write in my scripts you know what we actually know so far is this what it could suggest is this. So I think you do need to go down those realms of speculation a little bit, but I think the evidence can point you that way. So if there are obvious telltale signs, perhaps in the way that uh, the, the debris is scattered around, for example, can tell you how the aircraft um, um, broke up, whether it was midair, whether it hit the ground. There, there are conclusions you can draw with some of the evidence that's in front of you, but I try never to do that without speaking to an accident investigator, a former accident investigator, a pilot, an expert, basically, to double-check what I'm thinking. So I think I, d I do probably go on air and say, well, these are the possibilities, it's probably not that, it probably is that. But I try to couch it in honest terms, I try to explain why I'm thinking that, and I try and back it up with people who really know their stuff, who've properly investigated these things and know what they're talking about. So certainly hopefully the, that keeps it in check. Yeah, very much so. And certainly the guys in the studio with me, Carlos and Matt, you know, we're, we're reading stories every week and we talk about, we're, we're reading, it could be the Daily Mail, it could be any publication actually, and it talks about a, a 777 that's had a problem and they show a picture of an A320. That's fairly typical of, of some of the, the written press. How difficult is it for you to make sure that you, you're, that all the picture editors you're working with 
have got all the right content, even if it's library. Uh, yeah, that, that is really tricky. And, you know, I'm often the one shouting at the telly as well. Um, but, uh, you know, to some extent, there are people around the BBC who just like aircraft, who will notice these things. When things go out live on air, if it's wrong, often someone internally will just notice because it's their interest as well. So it doesn't tend to last for long. Uh, you know, people are professionals as well. They're used to putting this stuff out. They normally double check. Things are well labelled in the library. Um, but there is an element of once uh, a piece of misinformation has got out, it's very hard to kind of close the door afterwards. I do have a system, basically, on my iPhone, I can put something on an email and it will go out to the entire BBC. It goes on our internal uh, wire system mm. and I can put urgent, you know, from Richard Westcott, please stop saying this, it isn't this, it isn't that. Uh, you know, that, that works to some extent. It can, it can um, uh, you know, stop the fact being, or the lack of facts being repeated. Uh, so there are kind of ways I can get messages to people, but sometimes it takes three or four goes. Because you'll just hear it, and there's so much output on the BBC, you'll just hear it somewhere obscure, and kind of, and then sometimes they just ring up and say, actually, you're getting that wrong. So hopefully there's enough checks and balances. And how about social media? How do you use that? How do you use Twitter, for example? To get a lot of information, so it's a great place to just kind of go, has anyone got any expertise in this area? And obviously you double-check what people are telling mm. you afterwards. But it's very handy for people who've worked in certain places, flown certain types of aircraft, who just happen to know what they're talking about. And as I say, we, we then talk to them privately away from, you know, well, Twitter tends to be the one we use, um, double-check they are who they say they are and their credentials and so on. So it's very useful for gleaning information and also for putting out information. If there are things that are out there that are wrong and you find out they're wrong, you can say, well, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that, and you hope it gets retweeted. It is when the big stories come along, and I sort of... Like is the wrong word because you're often talking about tragedies, but the, the puzzles of when things go wrong with aircraft, it is interesting trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, I mean, MH370 is probably the most interesting story I've ever covered. Mm. And it's, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of the families and a lot of the people who've taken a keen interest in that. And it's still incredibly frustrating not knowing what's happened to that aircraft. So I, I find all of that... Uh, you know, fascinating. I went to Malaysia to talk to the, the sister of the pilot of MH370. Gosh. Well, that was amazing. She's a fantastic woman, Sakin Abshar. Really interesting person, really rational. You know, you would sort of think she'd sit and go, oh, no, it wouldn't be my brother kind of doing that. It mm. couldn't possibly. She had very rational answers for why she really didn't think it was her brother because he was just a, actually a pretty ordinary guy with a nice, happy, stable family life. She lived around the corner from him. All the family knew him. So, you know, that gives you a unique insight. And to be able to get to go and do things like that behind the scenes, I think is just fascinating. A, it's an amazing place to visit. And B, she's an amazing woman to meet. A lot of reporting, or a lot of reporters, may not have that opportunity. You, you've made the effort to go and do that, so it gives you a much better insight b b behind the, uh, the tragedy that, that unfolded. Clearly. Yeah, I think I need to give that as well, because I am a specialist. I can't just say what's on all the wires. I have to give that background information. So if something's happened to an aircraft, the first thing I do is ring a pilot of that type of aircraft mm. and just say, OK, so, you know, what do the switches look like? Uh, when this is happening, what alarms would be going off? What would they sound like? Get that real detailed information because then I want to go on the radio and the telly and explain what's actually happening, what, what, would, you know, what it all would have looked like, what it all would have sounded like. And because I'm a specialist, I'm able to do that. I've got a bit of space and time to do that. So that's a real privilege, I think. From your point of view, what's the most difficult part of your job? It is getting it right. 
it's the deadlines. Um, the fact is TV is very logistical, so I actually haven't got hours to sit there and plough through and get all the facts absolutely perfect because just sorting out where TV crews go, who you interview, getting the pictures is so complex. That is 90% of television. Um, and it's frustrating not to have more time to dig down into the stories. So I think that that's what's tricky. Say something happens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm cutting a piece for the 6 o'clock news that night. You're also doing all the radio as well. And just that sort of panic, really, mm. about getting everything absolutely right and accurate and getting good pictures and getting interesting guests to talk to and producing it something that makes sense and tells the story and is right. Would you prefer to be slightly later with the story, but at least you have more accuracy and more depth um, rather than trying to break it too soon? I think it's a really good question. I get asked this a lot. I did a conference for the um, AAIB, their 100-year anniversary. I spoke at the conference, so that was a real honour and a fabulous mm. day as well. And I've, done I've spoken at international accident conf um, investigator conferences. And they all say the same thing. Why do you rush to get it on air? Why don't you wait until you know what's happened and then put out all the facts? But that just isn't the way news works. That's not the way editors work. Everybody else is putting stuff out there. It's a competitive industry. We have to say something. And the way I get around that is to have that background knowledge, is to go on air and say, look, okay, this is what we know, this is the type of aircraft, this is how old it was, this is what accident investigators will be looking for when they arrive on the scene, these are the clues we have so far, but it's early days. So I go on, I go on air as quickly as I can, but I don't pretend that I know exactly what's happened, and that, that's kind of my way around it. There's a lot of pressure, presumably, from the editorial team to get something on air as soon as you can, and maybe if it's a, a five o'clock story that's breaking for the six, as, as an example, that must be very difficult from, from your point of view. It's very, very difficult. It did happen. Uh, it's normally on a Friday. There tend to be <laughs> aircraft accidents. Even the pilots say that. Yes. You know. <laughs> um, there was a, um, they had a battery fire on a Dreamliner at, I'm pretty sure it was Heathrow. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes, yeah. So it wasn't the main, obviously there'd been battery fires with mm. the Dreamliners, and that was a huge story and actually I went to Ethiopia when, to see how Boeing were mending those batteries Gosh. or the system they put in place to, to stop the fire spreading yeah. rather than mending. Um, and we went on the first flight of a Dreamliner after it, after it was grounded. Um, this was after that. It was a different type of fire, it turns out, in the end. But that happened, or we found out about that, at about 5 o'clock on a Friday. Frankly, I was just walking out the door. Um, <laughs> And suddenly everyone wants a piece of the story, yeah. the radio, the TV. And it turns out the aircraft that caught fire was the one I'd been on in Ethiopia. Was it really? So we okay. actually saw the sort of code on it. And, and I was able to go on yeah. telly and just say, I've been on that aircraft. I know they fixed the batteries on that particular aircraft because I watched them do it. Gosh. Uh, so I was able to give a bit of insight that it probably wasn't a similar battery problem to the one that had grounded the, the other aircraft. Yeah. But it's panicky. Definitely. Yes, I, I can imagine that. Um, what's the most cha challenging part about your job? I, I've said, what's, what's after you? What's the most difficult? What's, what are the, the biggest challenges that, that you face? Well, for me, I like to go and find stories that are interesting but a, a little bit different, but it, it's kind of hard to find the space to go and do that. So I do the day to day stuff. Where are they going to build a runway? You know, in the southeast of England, what's happening with the Southern Rail Strike, all the obvious day to day mm. stuff. But I like to go away and find you know, developments in, in various industries that are a bit different and unique. So recently we went up in the, in the Siemens electric plane. That took a bit oh, of I saw the, uh, the to, piece you did that. To sort yeah, out. That but 
I just it's so fascinating yes. to get you know and so quiet yeah <laughs> going up and, <laughs> yes. um, and so actually to make that happen and mm. get the resources to make that happen regardless of what people think you know we're not awash with money I can't just turn up and say to an editor I want to go here there or everywhere and can, will you pay for it yes I have to justify it um, so it's just balancing really the day-to-day mm. -day stuff which I have to be around for with that interesting quirky stuff that predicts the future of transport that everyone loves. Um, yes, I was going to... It takes gonna, a bit of finding. Yeah, it does. I was going to ask you about that, because obviously there's the very dynamic situation of, you know, real-time aircraft accidents and incidents. But then, of course, there's the ongoing stuff of things like, you know, the third runway, which I think we're into about the 16th year now of, of discussion about it. I feel it's coming to an end at some point, but there's always a story, and there's always a political story surrounding it as well. How do you cover that kind of thing? It keeps me going, yes. things like that. HS2, another one, the high-speed yes. railway. These stories just rumble mm. on and on and on I do wonder sometimes if that runway will ever get built it seems in a good place at the moment but then it did before when Labour yeah. approved it yeah. um, so uh, and they're, they're great stories like that because they get me on air because they're in interesting because they involve a lot of money and a lot of people's lives and I try to cover every aspect from the politics and the big economics down to the people who have to live under the flight path and suffer the pollution and all the rest of it. So I do enjoy those stories, um, and they are my bread and butter. Um, and I know they'll never resolve, really. So yes. that's the other thing. <laughs> I, I don't expect to be doing this job if they ever put a spade in the ground and start building that. Thing. No, it's endless <laughs> content, really, yeah. isn't it, from your point of view? Speculation, yeah. And everyone's saying to me, is this going to happen now? And I think, I don't know, because no one can say. What's always interesting about these stories is, I turn up and say, well, what do you think is going to happen like that? And they turn up and say, well, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Everyone is a bit in the dark. Yeah. And, it even th and it tends to come down to the politicians. And then yes. half the time, they don't know. Yeah. So people are not as well informed quite often as everyone thinks. They just go by what they read in the papers, the gossip, and what they think the Prime Minister and the, and the Chancellor of the time are, are going to do. And they're the, often the two most important people. And these stories develop tremendous amounts of momentum as well. And you get to the, you eventually get to the real story, or maybe there isn't a real story. So there's actually a lot of chatter and, and background information without any real conclusion for the time being. Do, do you find that a lot? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I'm regularly kind of rung at weekends saying there's this little bit of gossip in the paper, and it'll be some MP has leaked something to some newspaper saying, oh, he throws a goner. You know, I, I remember when George Osborne was supposedly going to, you know, ditch HS2, yes. and then it was going to come <laughs> back, and then someone else was going to ditch mm. Heathrow, and then what happens if Boris Johnson becomes prime minister? It's endless gossip. It's endless, oh, this is it, that's the end of the project. And then suddenly, a month later, you know, the government's making big announcements how it's all going to go ahead. So it is a bit, it's a bit of a roller coaster. I treat a lot of it with a pinch of salt now, I've learned that. Yes, and do you have a good relationship with people like the Transport Secretary, for example? So, um, not saying so you get necessarily get the inside story, but at least you have a, a fair crack of the whip when it comes to, to briefing and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've had three Transport Secretaries now, so in five years. It was Justine Greening when I first started, mm. and Patrick McLaughlin, and now Chris Grayling. Yeah. Actually, I've, I thought they're all very nice people. I've mm. got on with them. They're good to talk to once you actually meet them face to face. Uh, and they've got nice staff around them. So actually, yeah, I do feel that we have a, a good relationship, really. And I, I try to get on with the, you know, all of those people in government because they're the people who give you the information, not that they, you know, they hand out that much. The, I guess the problem with some of this stuff is a lot of it comes from the Treasury. That's sort of a little bit off my patch. So to an extent, the D Department for Transport is told what to do by the Treasury. So half the time, 
they don't know. But yeah, we, we, tr we keep as good relations as we can mm. with all the politicians because, as I say, actually, they're the people that make the decisions in the end. And do you, do you get sort of advanced briefing, ad advanced information about things that the government are proposing to actually put out into the public domain? Sometimes. We always ask for it. Uh, we will sometimes get things on embargoes uh, because they're big and they're complex. And my argument is always, if you want me to go on telly three minutes later and explain what you're saying or explain the story and you want me to be accurate, not just basically speed read a, an executive summary and then and make it up as I'm going along desperately trying to get the facts right, well, yeah. then I need some advance notice. But that is quite common practice around journalism. You know, we are given an advance peek on some of the more complex stuff. Not all the time. Sometimes we do get things thrown at us last minute. But, yeah, I mean, we always try to get it because it obviously makes our job easier in terms of accuracy. Yes, of course. Well, that's been absolutely superb. Thanks very much indeed, Richard. And we always ask all of our guests, you're clearly an aviation enthusiast, what would be your favourite plane to fly on, either current uh, or in, in the past? SR-71. Oh, right. Okay. No doubt at all. That was a very you know, I, definite <laughs> response. I started <laughs> writing a children's book. I never managed to get it published. I keep going back to it, but it's yeah. all about the pilot's experience of flying. Um, what it's actually like to fly some of these aircraft. So I've spoken to some Blackbird pilots. It's just amazing. I mean, they used to heat their food on the window. It got so hot. So they'd hold the tube up against it. Yeah. And they had these fantastic medicals before they flew because the navigator at the back wasn't able to fly the aircraft and the, and the pilot at the front wasn't able to navigate the aircraft. So if one or other of them got ill, they were in real trouble. Yeah. <laughs> they, could, they couldn't bring that thing down. I just think it's the most amazing piece of engineering, fascinating aircraft as a real shame they, they ditched it because it could still be doing a good job today. And it? that's so often the case, isn't it? We're, we're finding not just in the military but in the civil world, um, it's all been a bit sort of, everyone's looking at economics all the time, so actually high-performance aircraft, certainly in the civil world, is, is very rare uh, these days. It's all about uh, economy and trying to make the passenger um, fares and all the rest of it uh, more reasonable, I guess. It is. I am fascinated to see if anyone ever makes supersonic passenger flight viable in terms of how polluting it is as well as how expensive it is and how noisy it is. We'll see. It would be fantastic if they could come up with some kind of propulsion system that would get us around really quickly and not you know, wreck the planet and be really noisy. So I, I hope that someone is able to do something along those lines, and that, that's the... I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, though. I think we always say the same <laughs> thing. We always wish it does, but uh, we don't know. Thanks ever so much for today, Richard. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fun. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com The Plane Talking UK podcast is a voluntary project that aims to keep you informed with the latest aviation-related stories from newswires across the globe. Producing our content does cost money, though. If you enjoy our show, why not help us keep on the air by making a donation towards the server and website hosting fees through PayPal. Any contributions would be greatly appreciated. Are you an Amazon user? If so, why not do your shopping through the link on our website? There's no cost to yourself, and Amazon pays us a small referral fee on qualifying purchases. To find out more about the show and to meet the team, take yourself to our website website www.plaintalkinguk.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash plaintalkinguk on Twitter via at plaintalkinguk or get in touch via email on podcast at plaintalkinguk.com thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening. Flyby 5823 Trent Dane for 23 hour Manchester Wizz Air 6X 
Live flight level 210, direct to Bretman's Park. United 123, maintain 280 knots. anymore. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Grant, Grant, turn that down. Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to talk to us about the amazing world of aviation right here in Australia and occasionally in New Zealand as well. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. Find us at planecrazydownunder.com, on iTunes, or lurking about on other people's podcasts just like this one. We've got crazy accents and lots of great aviation content. And we promise not to talk about the cricket. No, never. Not the cricket. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> what is cricket anyhow? Something we win a lot. Oh, there oh. we go. <laughs> so we're going to say a massive thank you to our oh, yeah. amazing co-host Neville Bounds for uh, for doing that. I tell you what. I mean, what's he going to do next? The Queen? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's going to contact the Queen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she she liked aeroplanes apparently. It's, you know, I mean, you know, Nev, Nev just has so many strings in his bow. He does. He's absolutely. got like he's got like an orchestra. But also, what what a lovely chap uh, Richard Westcott yeah. is. A very yeah. insightful interview, interview as several of you said in the so, chat yeah. room here. Really, really, really nice. And it's quite nice to it's quite nice to see that uh, somebody at the BBC has a similar passion for um, our. Um, uh, you know, sort of inaccurate media reporting as 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 we do. That's uh, it's, it's yeah. great to hear. So we've got a little bit of ATC going on in the background, as you can probably hear. We are live from the old Buckingham Air Show, as you can probably see if you're watching on YouTube. Um, did we get a definitive what what that is in front of us? Uh, which that that's a, a the little oh, glass uh, thing, uh, wasn't it? E E Z something. Like that. I'll yeah. have to look it up. We'll okay, that's all right. The, that somebody in the chat room will point it out yeah. to us in a minute. So uh, yeah. So we're uh, we obviously as uh, Matt just. We are at the old Buckingham Air Show here in uh, the county of Norfolk. We are indeed. We've got Coast. about 45 minutes before the live flying starts. So the yeah. flying program, I think, starts at one o'clock. Carlos is just going to bring up a quick, uh, quick schedule, give us a, a rundown of what we've got to look forward to today. So uh, on today's flying acts, uh, which have been confirmed, uh, we've got uh, the Supermarine Spitfire MH434. That's going to be doing a fly. Uh, display and we've got uh, Matt Summers with the Vans RV8 uh, as well. Uh, Nigel Wilson's going to be here in his Yak 52. And uh, we've also got uh, one of the popular displays uh, um, teams here in uh, in the UK, the Wildcats. Ah, yes, uh, love the Wildcats. Uh, we've got the Extra and the Model. Uh, extra flying, which uh, Matt saw yesterday. Yeah, that was the, amazing. That's the extra. Um, uh, I think it's a 500 with a little mini remote controlled. Uh, yeah, one in fact, actually, if you're watching the YouTube lead, there, there, there's here's a little bit of a preview of what we were looking forward that we were watching. Yes, it's absolutely amazing. It's uh, it's uh, I, what was the what's the actual aircraft? 
It is the extra 500 now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a radio-controlled version that's exactly the same. So if you're watching the YouTube, you can just see a little of what we recorded yesterday, actually. And it's just... It was so amazing, amazing to see the two um, sort of flying side by side. But uh, we'll, no, we'll be covering that... Uh, and we'll be covering all of the air show live uh, as soon as we finish uh, this particular, um, this the actual show show, and then uh, we'll bring you some edited highlights later on in the year. So we've got the Hawker Hurricane as well. Uh, she'll be flying in later. Uh, Otto the helicopter, which if you were watching earlier on oh, in yeah. the show, you'd have seen Otto the helicopter uh, flying with the uh, with the big eyes on the front. Um, it's uh, it's one of those crop spraying helicopters, Matt. Um, really? Which, uh, yeah, they kind of little big bubble <laughs> uh, cockpit sort of glass on those. Um, Brendan, uh, Brendan O'Brien's Flying Circus as well will be flying later. They're going to be landing on the trailer. They're going to have an aircraft oh, saw actually that land well. on the trailer of a, of a moving car. That was ridiculous. Um, uh, we've got the Beechcraft Staggerwing. That's also going to be flying as well today. We've got uh, Rod Dean. Uh, I don't quite know where he's flying. It doesn't say here on the list. But we've also got the Shark P-51 Mustang. Now, that's pretty awesome Mustang. Mm. Uh, got the shark teeth on the front engine cowling on that, yeah. so that's really, really easy to spot. Yeah, and nice also, and uh, later on in the show, uh, I think this is coming up uh, later on this afternoon, we've got uh, the B-17 Flying Fortress, the Sally B. That's going to be mm. flying uh, over here from uh, the Duxford Imperial War Museum, oh, where wow. me and Matt were a few weeks back uh, with Nev, and that's going to be flying, doing a fly past here. Don't think that's going to be landing. I don't think the runway's quite long enough here at Old Buck for the uh, B-17 to get in, but uh, she'll be doing an awesome fly past here of uh, of the airfield and the show. So, Matt, how's, uh, how are you warmed up now? Because the, yes, yeah. the sun is actually <laughs> yeah, out absolutely. here. Absolutely. Yeah, I was a bit. It was a bit chilly earlier, but um, as I say, it's the minute the sun came out, it uh, it improved massively. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's 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 turning out to be a very nice day. It certainly is. So later on in the show, we've got another segment, haven't we, Matt? Uh, we have. From oh, yeah. What was that one uh, in Thailand? Do you know? Uh, yes. Uh, it's again. Uh, Nev's been at it again. Uh, this is part of the usual passenger experience uh, segment that we've been running of late, and uh, that's with, um, uh, that's uh, uh, another installment again, and one of uh, Nev's friends. But uh, another chap by the name of Richard, but we'll be playing uh, with Cobalt, I think, if my memory says Richard Cobalt, and we'll be playing that out uh, awesome. very shortly. Awesome. So we're going to uh, what are we going to we're going to bring some live footage now. I think would be quite good. Well, from, we can uh, certainly give it a try. As I said, the actual air show doesn't start um, until um, one o'clock. It's now twenty past twelve here on Sunday, the thirtieth of July. Um, I think what we're going to do, actually, as I say, because the air show doesn't start till a bit later, what we're going to do is we're going to play that interview uh, that Nev uh, did for us. So this is uh, the latest instalment in our um, passenger experience, and it, or Nev's passenger experiences, as I say, and this is uh, a friend of his, uh, and uh, here is Nev to introduce it now. Hello, everybody. It's Nev here again with another passenger experience. Well, as a presenter, it's inevitable, I suppose, that several of your interviewees turn out to be among your favourites. And this is definitely one of them, I have to say. Back in June of this year, I had a chat with a very good friend of mine, Richard Coborn, at the Club at the Ivy in London, where we had just finished one of our famous networking lunches. Richard has a long history of working as a producer and director in television, radio, exhibitions and live events. These days he can be found sitting in his garden shed studio just over the English-Welsh border, maybe recording a voiceover for an American company or perhaps polishing up a chapter for the novel that he is currently writing. In his professional life, Richard has travelled a great deal with many different airlines and it will be fair to say that he has strong opinions regarding how they have served him over the years. I began by asking him his record for the number of flights he had ever taken. 
One year I took 91 flights. By any stretch of the imagination, that's sort of up to the same scale, I guess, as some of the flight crew. And you do become pretty jaded, as I'm sure you imagine. Yes, I was gold on BA. Yes, I was gold on KLM. But then you start to ask yourself, what separates the airlines? What actually makes one airline better than another airline? What is it that makes you choose Lufthansa over BA, over KLM, over EasyJet? It's the customer service. It has to be. Because let's be honest, you sit in a metal tube and you fly from airport to somewhere else. There is no difference. Ho-hum, you might almost say. You take off, you go along in the air, and you land. So the only thing that airlines have got to differentiate itself is the service on the ground and the service in the air. To some extent, you then get the choice of airport. And when we lived in Cardiff, I used to use Cardiff Airport a hell of a lot because BA Regional flew from there. KLM flew from there. Now, BA Regional packed up many years ago, which was hugely disappointing because I was a regular user. KLM, on the other hand, are sensational because they've maintained a wonderful regional network throughout the UK. And you can fly from Newcastle, Birmingham, Manchester, Scotland, you know, wherever you want, Varshkifol, to anywhere in the world. And, you know, that's the bit that you really have to think about. For somebody that doesn't live in a major city, like London, for example, to get to your airport is a real faff. KLM identified this fact and made it easy for you to travel from a regional airport to anywhere in the world. Would you drive up the M4 to Heathrow or Gatwick? Because I know you've got some property in Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands. Would you go that far just to get your points? Unequivocally, no. Why not, you might ask? Well, the reason is that, let's just talk about BA. They have so devalued the customer loyalty programs that actually there is no real true incentive for becoming, remaining loyal. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, the recent series of BA strikes did huge damage, not because of the fact I couldn't fly BA, because BA forced me to fly on other airlines. And you suddenly realized BA aren't up there. They're off the pace. And in fact, I think if you look at the top 20 airlines in the world now, BA are no longer there. And I think they've got to take a long, hard look at themselves. Why don't I travel to Heathrow, which is two hours, two hours, ten, when I travel to Bristol, which is 45 minutes? The choice is EasyJet, the choice is BA or one of the major airlines. Reason? Simple. There's no differential advantage of flying with BA. I get on board EasyJet who, by the way, have now made me a flight club member, a service and a, and a level I didn't even know existed. You get on board, you can have extra leg room. If you're a Speedy Plus member, you get it for free. If you're not, you pay 22 quid. You can have a cup of coffee, £2.50. You can have a very nice sandwich. You can have a drink. You pay for it. It does exactly what it says on the tin. And I think that's the issue. You get on board British Airways now, and unless you're, unless you're travelling in first-class long haul, frankly, I can't see any differential advantage for all the hassle you have to put up with with going through the large airports you know let's be honest if you're traveling from Heathrow you've really got to allow two hours to park the car get from the car into the terminal or even come from the train or the Heathrow Express into the terminal go through security you know the queues the people etc etc when flying from Bristol I think it's about 12 minutes from arriving at the airport in the car to actually be sitting in the lounge ready to take off. 
And I think that that's the problem. You get the sense sometimes these big major airlines don't travel enough with each other. And I don't think that they experiment enough with the various methods of travel. I doubt whether anyone from BA has recently flown from Bristol or Cardiff and actually looked at what's going on there. And I, I think that they've got to look holistically at the whole travel experience. Hamish Taylor uh, was responsible for relaunching and invigorating BA Club Europe. He looked very carefully at the whole service. And he was the person that realized that if you've just flown across the Atlantic and want to go into a meeting, you want to be fresh and revived. And he was the person that brought in the arrival experience, the arrival showers. And he also looked at the whole thing from the moment that you booked your ticket to the moment you actually were in your car out of the airport. And I think that's what a lot of airlines have forgotten. The holistic experience and the moment you book the ticket and sometimes that's very disappointing. You also, of course, get on board and have an expectation of the service you're going to receive, be it in, in economy, be it in club, be it in first. And if that falls short, well, you, you have a whole four, five, six, 14, 24 hours to fume, I don't know, it's like a fire burning, raging, suddenly realizing by the time you get off the aircraft, you're so bloody annoyed by the fact that they ran out of tomato juice or, or champagne, you get off and you're just furious. The properties that you've bought in the Canary Islands, were they as a result of the direct connectivity that you have from the west of England? Where anybody chooses to buy a property is dependent upon a number of factors. We chose Fuerteventura because it's got an all-round great climate, the, the, the character of the island, the culture, the scenery suited us. But of course a major part of that was can we get there? Now Bristol Airport is 25 minutes from our house, EasyJet, it's a major EasyJet hub so there's dozens and dozens of EasyJet aircraft so if you get one going tech it's pretty easy for them to bring in another one which has happened you're looking for reliability of service and obviously you're looking at cost as well that I think is where EasyJet really scores they're delivering exactly the service that you need at a price that is difficult to beat that made the whole thing work we couldn't have done it unless we were able to get to Fuerteventura very easily so it's a whole range of reasons, but certainly the, 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 the transport is vitally important. And not just in the air, but also the check-in experience uh, uh, and the experience in the lounges and how easy it is to board and the in-flight service. It's vital. Now, you and I are BA fans. How are they going to get back from where they are at the moment? It's a catastrophe, frankly, isn't it? I think it depends who you ask. And that is the problem. Who is your customer? Who are you trying to satisfy? If your prime goal is to satisfy BA shareholders, possibly you might be considered that you're actually doing a good job. If your prime objective is to look after the customers, I think there's a lot to be examined. Look after the customers and the profit will look after itself. And I think BA have forgotten that. I also think they have been seduced by trying to compete with the budget airlines you won't do it their corporate infrastructure is too large their overhead is too large so what's left to compete upon you've only got one thing and that is customer service if you're spending I don't know three and a half thousand pounds to go business class across the Atlantic 
the difference between three and a half thousand pounds and three thousand eight hundred pounds to most people buying business class is irrelevant but that extra bit of money would go so far in improving the services both on the ground and in the air and I think that's where BA really 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 got to look at this you know I was a gold card holder I'm blue why there is no difference between BA and EasyJet some people might say that's nonsense even if I'm traveling BA business as I still do okay I might have nobody sitting next to me I might possibly have slightly better bit of food I might possibly have a free drink but that's not enough to keep me loyal to BA they've got to do more and I think they have got themselves into the situation of forgetting who their core customer group are and forgetting what keeps people loyal to BA and what makes people loyal to EasyJet what makes people loyal to EasyJet is a cost-effective flight with a service that they know that they're going to get what makes people disloyal to BA is the prices are not competitive and the service is variable and there is nothing worse than a service that is variable uh, that is also lets you down we talked about somebody where there was a flight where the champagne ran out 30 minutes into into the flight that's not acceptable not acceptable when you've probably just spent 50 to 100 pounds more than you could on EasyJet where they don't run out of champagne but you're paying seven pound a bottle which would you prefer you want certainty and I think people in business people who are flying professionally as opposed to for leisure and that's the other big difference yes 80% of flights now are for leisure but 20% of flights are definitely for business and business have certain demands and certain requirements that are different to the leisure traveler and, and I think that BA have completely and utterly forgotten that talk to us about luggage Richard Hamish Taylor was the guy that invented that funny metal cage that you put your luggage in when you're checking in because he said that if you've got some poor person who's just started it's their first job in check-in and you're absolutely convinced that your luggage the size of Pantechnicon is actually hand baggage how do you actually have that argument and he introduced this tangible way of measuring does it fit in here yes no if yes yes you can take it on board if no put it in the hold luggage is the bane of people's lives it pisses me off in spades when I see people struggling onto aircraft with 93 pieces of baggage completely ignoring the basic rules that the airline have laid down if the airlines are going to have a baggage rule then let's enforce it and enforce it strictly should we pay for baggage interesting question if I am traveling business class or first class no absolutely not it should all be included if I'm traveling an economy why should I actually pay extra for baggage I might not be traveling with so it's perfectly reasonable to have baggage extras I mean I traveled with 30k of baggage the other day and that cost me 130 quid extra and I thought to myself god this is a lot but ultimately I was traveling with 30k of luggage I, I, th I think the airlines have got to enforce the rules that they set and the problem that you have is if you've got a particularly aggressive passenger standing at the gate insisting that his baggage is right and you've got some poor sod who's 22 years old it, it ain't gonna happen they're not gonna they're not gonna risk their 
reputations, their lives, their, their safety, to have that argument. They're going to let it pass. Baggage is a big issue. I also think that need, people need to look at baggage, again, more holistically. Why don't we start looking at baggage pickups using couriers? Why don't we start look at looking at ways of getting the baggage from A to B? Most airlines will take a reasonable size handbag, which will keep you going for two or three days. So if you're going somewhere for three months or a, even a week or two weeks, why don't they somehow arrange a way of picking up the baggage a day beforehand and delivering it to your hotel? It's that level of service that is going to start differentiating the airlines for the benefit. And I, and I think that the first airline to come up with ways of doing things differently and better are going to make a killing. Give us a bit of a, a bit of plug for your own website and Twitter. I sold the business two and a half years ago, www.onscreenproductions.com and www.osphealthcare.com. Two businesses that we were in a very, very, very broad service arena that ranged from full-on marketing through to digital delivery, through to exhibition booths, through to events. It was the full range of stuff. You know when the time has come to move on, and you know when the time has come to go and start doing the things that you want to do. So I'm writing a novel at the moment that I hopefully will publish next year, which is all set in the world of celebrity. I, I do a lot of chairing of meetings, the odd facilitation of, of conferences, keynotes, speeches, and, and voiceovers using IPDTL. I'm not that busy, but by God, isn't it lovely being able to choose the jobs that you want to do and the ones that are actually going to give you satisfaction. And of course I have two holiday properties as Neville has suggested out in Fuerteventura which you're more than welcome to look up www.villaallegre villa v-i-l-l-a new word a-l-e-g-r-e dot co dot uk and www.rosadelaguna.com That's the plug and it's been a great joy speaking with Nev, and I hope that my disconnected witterings have given you some joy, some thought, or even if you have violently disagreed, I'll be delighted to hear from you, Richard at Coborn.com, C-O-B-O-U-R-N-E.com. Delighted to hear from you. Oh, Nev, thank you very much, as always. Great segment. What a lovely chap again, as uh, Richard said. Uh, that is Richard, sorry. As Nev said, it's... Um, such a lovely chap, and I know Nev was very much looking forward to uh, uh, yeah, so a bit of a favourite of his, I think, that interview, yeah. actually. It's yeah. uh, such a lovely chap. But all, all Nev's stuff is, is awesome. Well, of course. Always is. Always has been. It's a shame Nev can't be here with us today. It is a real shame. Yeah. I think he'd really love it. Actually, while we're talking about lovely listeners and obviously Nev... Yeah, we're going to have to say uh, a massive yeah. thank you to certainly Absolutely. someone, Indeed. one of our listeners Mr. at the Mr. Carl show. Lake has just wandered up randomly. I'm holding in my hand currently... <laughs> a pint of Sally B. Now, uh, they've uh, brewed. Uh, I'm not sure the name of the brewing company. We ought to find no, out. We really. need to find out. Um, in fact, Google it quick because you might be able to find <gasps> out. But, uh, yes, they've brewed. This is a pint of Sally B. So it's a, what I call either a pale ale or a summer ale, depending on what you want to call it. And um, it's absolutely gorgeous. So it's a proper, uh, it's a proper bitter. Uh, and uh, there's been a range of beers that have been brewed here, especially for the old Buckingham Air Show. So... Uh, uh, as I haven't got to go home for a very, very long time yet, uh, <laughs> cheers, everyone. I know. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, Carl. Thank you, Carl Lake. Uber, yeah. he's, uh, he's one of the uh, our Norwich Airport uh, contacts. 
So a big thanks to you, Carl, for that. And uh, actually, Carl had a joy flight earlier, or a experience flight earlier, yeah. with uh, with his son. So I hope you enjoyed that, Carl, yeah, as well, absolutely. on the uh, Saxon this, Air. This is a rare thing for you guys if you're watching on YouTube. Matt oh, look, is about to look have at a him. pint. He's yeah. drinking. He's drinking ale. <laughs> What could possibly go wrong oh, here? I oh know. <laughs> Just press the right buttons. Absolutely. So Can't promise anything. What we're going to do, we're going to wrap up the show now, episode yep. 175. Yep. Uh, but don't go anywhere because uh, we're not going to go and leave you all in, uh, in limbo. We're uh, going to stay live uh, streaming online and yep. uh, with the air show. So uh, keep up uh, with us on there today. We're gonna we've got some, as I say, we've got some great uh, shots of some stuff coming have, up later. Yeah. And uh, th- here's a little, little uh, teaser. This is the little helicopter. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see now that Carlos was talking about, which is, are you saying it was a spray copter originally? Well, yeah, these, uh, these helicopters are used as uh, kind of crop spraying helicopters uh, quite popular in the States yeah. and you can notice these because of their big bubble canopy in the front so uh, they uh, good good visibility on these helicopters I will say fantastic oh Steph says in the chat room by the way thanks for keeping her entertained during the morning run oh yeah, Steph she's doing that silly healthy thing S- Steph, healthy Steph's again, probably just it? done about what's she done oh 11 miles what two to go 12 miles what's wrong with you oh, woman? Dear, honestly, honestly. honestly oh hello oh, oh Liz Liz is in the air yes 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 hello, Liz, Liz. Liz has just popped in the chat room yeah. as well. As I say, it's been a busy old show, but uh, yeah. So that's 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 what's coming up later. We've got uh, all sorts of bits and pieces coming up. Um, we're going to keep the stream going as so we don't say. disappear, guys. Leave nope. us leave us plugged in. But for those who <laughs> are listening to the audio version of this show, episode one seven five is now about to come to a close. So thanks very much to everyone for watching, uh, yeah. and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.